Before we start today's GM Street, I wanted to tell you about our newest Ringer podcast, Binge Mode. Binge Mode is a place where we dedicate ourselves to rewatching and giving you expert analysis on our favorite television shows. For the next six weeks, the Ringers Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion will be diving deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. The first 10 episodes of Binge Mode are out now covering all of season one of Game of Thrones. Every Monday, we'll be releasing a new batch of 10 episodes covering every single, that's right, every single Game of Thrones season to date. And of course, you can subscribe to Binge Mode now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jason Concepcion says, do it! Welcome to GM Street. I'm Tate Frazier. On the line, Mike Lombardi. Lombardi, how are you doing, man? I'm great, Tate. I'm great. We're getting close to the NBA draft, which is really all I'm counting about. I'm not as excited about the games as I am about the draft. Yeah, thoughts on the games. Give me your quick thoughts on the game. Uh, the games so far are pretty chalk and what I would expect for the Warriors to do in the first two games. A little amped up. We'll find out tomorrow night. So if LeBron takes over and Tristan Thompson gets rebounds and it looks like the Cavs from last year, then the Cavs have hope. But if they come out and they assert themselves early and the Warriors come back regardless and make it a close game, then I think you're looking at five games. So I don't know. It, it'll be tough, but I, I don't see the Warriors get letting up after last year. I think last year really motivated them not to not to get too cocky. But, you know, it's been fun, though. I, I think people were being too negative about it because – it is still LeBron James versus Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and the Warriors. They just play team basketball, so I'm a fan of that. Yeah, it's it's a perfect segue into overcoming losses and overcoming wins and how to handle winning and how to handle losses as we go into GM Street this week. It's the perfect segue. It is, it is, and this week the team that we're going to be talking about is a team that is is very similar in, in a certain sense to uh, the Golden State Warriors. Just how quickly they rose up uh, and ascended to the top of the game. Obviously, Russell Wilson kind of came and became a star in a similar way that Stephen Curry did with the Warriors. And Russell Wilson and those guys, they win the Super Bowl in 2014. The world seems to be at their fingertips. We all remember the Richard Sherman play on Michael Crabtree. And then obviously, you know, the Seahawks go in, get their Super Bowl. And then they come off the Super Bowl, get back there. And then we have the play. Um, which you actually are writing a story about uh, the Seahawks and how they re- reacted and responded to the play, which of course is the Malcolm Butler interception at the goal line. A lot of people, you know, still bring up that Marshawn Lynch is a guy that probably needs to get the ball, but the Seahawks relied on a guy, Russell Wilson, who they view as the number one guy in the clubhouse for them, like basically the Derek Jeter of the Seattle Seahawks. But you're saying now. Pete Carroll's got his own principles and he needs he needs to get back to those principles. So can you just break that down a little bit? Like what what's what is the state of the Seahawks right now uh, in the Northwest? Well, I think when we, we start off, everybody thinks, well, it's really hard to overcome a, uh, you know, it's hard to win two championships in a row because mm-hmm. the mindset is, you know, it's tough to compete, it's tough to come back. But what's harder to do and and it's been proven through uh, through studies and Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, talks about it through these two Israeli psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Mm. Tversky's no longer with us, but they did a report on basically what's harder to overcome, winning a championship or losing one. And what they found out was most people hate the thrill, hate the fact of losing is so reticent in their mind that they they don't make good decisions moving forward mm-hmm. and that they become a little bit tempted in terms of how they approach things instead of saying, Hey, look, 
you know, we lost. We're going to get this thing back. We're going to be open-minded. The losses become a little bit painful, and they far outweigh the risk of winning. And so what I think what's happened to Seattle a little bit here is that, okay, they lose. It's devastating. People still talk about it. Seth Wickersham wrote a great column about it on ESPN.com about the internal fighting going on. And then our own Danny Kelly wrote about it as well, about how it's kind of been a tradition in Seattle. And I think what you see here with Pete Carroll is you see a guy who's built a really good organization on these principles. And, and these principles, Tate, are time and tested. I mean, this is what he did at USC when he got fired from New England. He decided he was going to go back and he was going to basically read the John Wooden book and he was going to go back and do these things that he felt he needed to do. And one was be highly competitive. Yep. He wanted players to be great in practice. Everybody must value the football. We're going to win games in the fourth quarter. We're going to speak with a great sense of confidence and our language is always going to be proactive. And those areas is where when you break down Seattle and you see it, they faltered since the play, for example. Yes. When they come since the play, they no longer are a great running team. They don't, they're not in, they're, they've gone down almost, they've gone significantly down in a running game in terms of their ability to run the football and their ability to win games in the fourth quarter. They used to be, last year, they were, I think, 16th in the fourth quarter comeback. So they haven't been able to do that partly because they've lost their identity. Yep. Yep. And and we and when you look at the identity of that team, I mean, you could even think back to that seven and nine Matt Hasselback team when Marshall Lynch, Marshall Lynch had that amazing run. You know, it, it all kind of it started there. You know, you see a team that can really hold onto the football and dominate the running game, and now they're averaging less than a hundred yards per team. You know, uh, on the rushing side of the football now in twenty sixteen, so they've really faltered in that sense. And one of the one of the things that you really focus on when you're talking about Pete Carroll is that he really emphasizes the ball and forcing turnovers. And Seattle, I mean, in turnover differential and fourth quarter point differential, they've both just basically declined over the past three seasons uh, since the play actually happened. So when you look at that and, right. and you and you put it all together, what like what does Pete Carroll have to preach to these guys to get them back? Folk is it is it a focus thing where you know maybe they just instead of focusing on those ex- specific things, when you have a championship and that culture and things sort of expand and people want to change their roles and grow their roles, it, do you lose your identity? And now Pete Carroll's he's like, hey guys, we got lost, but now we have to get back to the to the basics and maybe flip this thing around. I think the sting of losing has affected them. And I think what they try to do is they try to to massage it in a different way. And they put a lot of the burden on Russell Wilson. And I think that really, Tate, is where this thing goes. I think their inability to win in the fourth quarter in the last two years, their inability to protect the football like you talked about. They haven't been in the top five last year. They were outside the top five in turnover takeaway differential. So they've lost their identity in that area. And they've put so much pressure on Russell Wilson, and it's pretty obvious by the amount of formations. They're in they're in four receiver formations last year. They were in four receiver formations 228 times out of 546 passes. Okay, they were in three receivers 284 times. They're mm-hmm. spreading the field. They're putting the ball in Russell Wilson's hands. They're believing he's the guy. And all that else, Seattle's not Russell Wilson's fault, but all that else, Seattle is the fault of Seattle thinking Russell Wilson's a top 10 quarterback. I don't. I think he's outside the top 10. I think he's a quarterback that has to be managed effectively, and they did that the first couple seasons. They haven't recently. They've lost their run game, as you mentioned. They've gone down significantly, almost 70 yards in two years in running the football. They can't pass protect as well, and Wilson has to is asked to make a lot of plays, and he hasn't been able to do it, and I think that's where – 
this year, you're going to see Seattle go back to what Seattle has always done, which is the outside zone run game, which is play action passes, which is really limit the amount of times that Russell Wilson has to be standing behind the center and be in a drop back passing game. Because remember, he's 5'11". He can't see. Yep. And so when you're in 10 personnel, four receivers, one back, or 11, three receivers, one back, you're in shotgun. Mm-hmm. And you're in behind the center, so you can't see. And this is where I think Seattle has lost their identity. And this is why I think as they come back in the season and they stop the bickering and they stop all that, which we can touch on a little bit, is the reality is the focus is now going to be running an offense that is more suited to what Seattle has built their team on, which is that outside zone, which is winning the fourth quarter, which is play action passes and all that stuff. Yeah, we're going to get back to those personality types because, you know, uh, as as you've said, it's a very type A personality team. Russell Wilson's not really that kind of guy. And I think the the main thing that we saw with Seattle is, you know, Wilson goes from being this like he he's his own brand of quarterback in a sense. Like, you know, he's running the ball. I've seen him make some of the most magical plays. Like even you saying he's not a, not a top 10 quarterback just brings like bad memories of what Russell Wilson used to do at NC State back in the day. I mean, the guy was magical. Right. And it was because I mean, it was almost like I mean, I, I used to say that he was a Derek Jeter of football. Because, I mean, it just like he made whatever play had to be made. It, it never made sense how it happened, but it just somehow it happened. And I saw that when they won the Super Bowl. But I think the weird thing with Russell was they seemed to to decide that he was the Drew Brees. He needed to get his Jimmy Graham there. He needed to sit in the pocket. He needed to be this traditional quarterback. And I think he even bought into it a little bit. But really, I mean, we've both seen this. Russell Wilson dominates football games when he gets outside of the pocket. And because he can run with the football and make, a perfect pass. Like he can make a pinpoint pass on the run almost like as well as Aaron Rodgers can. And it's cause I mean, he has that baseball background. He just slings the ball, but when he sits in the pocket, are you almost like neuter to the, like his, his main skills and what he's able to do? And I think he and Cam Newton both got caught up with trying to be these, these, you know, traditional quarterbacks where they stay in the pocket and that's probably not the best for the team. And it also hurts the running game for the Seahawks because when Wilson's able to be some sort of a dual threat, and obviously he he's never been one to, to get himself in a position to get hurt because he's just smarter than that. But if he's able to, you know, help electrify that run game, get those 15 yard gains, like where he can get out of bounds real quick, get the easy first down. I think that's when Russell Wilson's at his best. And it just seems like the past few, you know, couple of seasons, Pete Carroll and those guys have committed to trying to make him a different kind of quarterback. And I, and I think that that also comes to, down to the fact that Russell Wilson's not going to speak up and be a type A guy. And you're talking about the type A personalities. When you have these these big guys like, a, you know, a Sherman, an Earl Thomas, a Cam Chancellor, and all these guys, all these big voices in the locker room, like what does that do to your team? Does it gal- Obviously it can galvanize your team, but also can split your team apart. Is that what you're seeing in Seattle? Well, I think what Pete did is Pete built a team on on highly competitive people. And whenever you have a group of highly competitive people, they want to win. They want to, they're going to speak their mind. And for Pete, you know, I almost think Pete grew up in an Italian family because <laughs> Pete loves the loves the locker room to be on edge a little bit. He doesn't mind players yelling or screaming. He seems mm-hmm. to handle it. He has a great way of handling the noise. He doesn't let it bother him. It, it doesn't affect him. And I think when Seattle reacts to everybody's column whether it's Seth Wickersham or Danny Kelly, they act like it's normal because it really is. They're like an Italian family. They don't mind arguing. They argue all the time. It's kind of normal for them. And so Pete does a good job of handling that because this is what he wants. Pete wants a type A personality. Mm -hmm. He wants a team that's always on edge. And I think what's happened is because they've lost over 70 yards in the running game the last two years, 
They put more pressure on Wilson to be that guy. He's not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Tom Brady. But he becomes those players, like you said, when he gets outside the pocket and he can make throws down the field. For me, Wilson is a systematic quarterback. Does it? You know, Joe Montana used to be criticized for being a West Coast system quarterback. Call it whatever you want. But Wilson really needs it. He needs to be on the move. He needs to be outside. And then he becomes really a dangerous player. And I think that's why there's so much resentment towards Wilson, because I think the players in Seattle even realize that Wilson, standing alone, can't carry the team. But Wilson in the right system, in the right scheme, wow, now they become a better team. And it's almost like uh, a guy that you know went out. Earl Thomas goes out December fourth last year, and then the the Seahawks season really goes off the rails. You know the defense basically just it's a free for all. They're just giving up tons of touchdowns, and they gave up twelve touchdowns the rest of the season. When you have like Earl Thomas should actually be like the Ray Lewis or the the Ed Reed of the Seahawks team, and the defense should be first. And it's almost like they got away from that identity of like we want to force turnovers, we want to be the Legion of Boom, we want to wreck people on defense, and then let the offense take care of the football and score easy touchdowns, and you know run the clock down and do the smart. Like they stopped playing smart football with Russell Wilson being at the helm, and it's almost like they need to get back to that and let Earl Thomas and that defense set the tone for them. Yeah, I think that's what everybody thinks is the reason. I I don't agree. I think Earl Thomas is a good player. I think he's a component to their defense. But he's not the guy that's making it happen. The defensive front is. And where they've lost it, that's why we saw Malik McDowell get drafted in the second round by Seattle this year. That's why they drafted Jones in the third round. They need more depth in their defensive line. They need Michael Bennett. They need Cliff Averill. They need those guys, Frank Clark, to really step up. Because if you ask anybody in the Seattle building why they haven't been as good on defense, they'll say to you the depth with our defensive front has been a problem. Earl Thomas is a great player. He helps their defense. But the thing that makes Seattle's defense go, since Pete Carroll has been a defensive coordinator or has been involved, has always been the defensive line. The pass rush. And the depth of that defensive line, when they were humming good and Bennett could move around, and they had a bunch of different players in the defensive front that were really effective, yeah, they were really doing well. But last year they lost a lot of depth. And because of that depth, they lost effectiveness of some of the players and guys' play count had to go up. Mm -hmm. I'm not disputing the Earl Thomas theory. I think Cam Chancellor is the guy that makes their toughness. I think he's in the box. He's a B-gap player, which is hard to do. But where where I see Seattle has shifted this year is they draft. They spent a third and a second round pick on two defensive tackles that can rush the passer. That's what they need. They need inside pressure. And then that defense will turn around a little bit, and then they can win the fourth quarter. But without it, they can't. And I think really they have everybody's attention now. I think one thing Seattle has done, Tate, is they realize that after losing the Malcolm Butler play, they had to get back to being who they are. And being who they are is, like you said, great defense, outside zone, win the fourth quarter, and win games at home. I mean, they're 9-9 and on the road in the last two years. I mean, they haven't been dominating teams like they did before. And when they were starting out, when they were just building this, you know, they were 11-5 and on the road. You know, they're 22-13-1 since the play. 22-13-1. And I think what's happened this offseason is Seattle's looked at themselves and said, stop, time out. We need to fix it. And you can even look at the difference between when they went to the Super Bowl in 49, like how they came, you know, against Carolina, how they played against the Panthers and handled them. And then just the next year for Super Bowl 50, what the Panthers did when they blew them out in Charlotte, you know, it was like two different teams. It seemed like, you know, they'd almost got to the other side of, of whatever dynasty they had there in Seattle. So they, they really need to 
to figure out what's going on and, there. And it all comes down to how you, it's, to me, it's a lesson for Atlanta this year. Everybody thinks Atlanta will be highly motivated to come back from the horrible, from the horrible uh, letdown. And I think where, where Dan Quinn has to really do a good job is understanding that most people's mindset is when they lose, they don't, they have a fear of, of feeling that experience again, and you've got to change it. It, it isn't as much as we all think winning it, you know, takes away our motivation. Losing enhances it. That's not what these guys are writing about, and I think it's true. And if you read the Undoing Project, you can learn a lot about it. I think Quinn should do it. Well, that's a good uh, book request for uh, for that's Dan Quinn. Summer yeah. book recommendation yeah, for yeah, Dan yeah. Quinn. Summer summer book rec. Uh, Dan Quinn will hop on that. He's had a tough uh, tough time with a next the next team we're going to come up and talk about, and that's Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. Are reporting to camp today. Uh, Dan Quinn has had two bad experiences with them. First, to play, and then obviously last season the the collapse we should call it uh, with the Atlanta Falcons. But Tom Brady reports to camp. Bill Belichick today. Did you see this? He's wearing the hood. He looks like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. he looks like Emperor, Emperor Palpatine uh, from uh, the Return of the Jedi. That's what Teddy Bruschi was saying this morning <laughs> on ESPN. Uh, so Bill Belichick's wearing a hoodie, and uh, he's getting asked the first time about Tom Brady's uh, concussion response. Uh, Giselle that put that story out this year, saying that you know Brady's had to deal with some concussions in the past. When you see Bill Belichick in, in back in form here, looking like uh, he wants to dismiss all this sort of talk, um, does it make you feel like you're at home a little bit? It makes you feel like football's right around the corner when I see Bill Belichick with his hood up, covering his eyes, and you know, barely mumbling responses back to reporters. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, it's it's always you know we're getting these are mini camps. It's always good, and I, I think this story is is fascinating because Brady was never on the injury report, and people yep. keep asking Bill for an answer, and like, what answer is he going to give it? If Brady did have a concussion and went through the concussion protocol, it would have been documented. And, you know, I think this is something that, that there's no real answer for because he wasn't on the injury report. He didn't come out of a game and the spotters miss it. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But he played in it and I couldn't see any downside in his play if he did, in fact, have something that Giselle was saying that he had. So I think this is like eating putty. You know, Bill's sitting there with his hoodie on and just making sure that uh, he just fields those questions left and right and doesn't answer. <laughs> and we should say that the uh, the injury report of the New England Patriots is like uh, you know government you know documents. There's no way anyone's going to get their hands on those. Uh, so <laughs> unless the girl, what's the girl who just uncovered all those documents down there that got arrested today? Maybe she knows how oh, that yeah. goes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Maybe that's the best. I can't. Case. I forgot her name. It was a weird name too. It was like uh, you know something. But anyway, maybe she might be able to uncover the mystery of the of the, of the concussions. But the fact is, you're not on the injury report. And you don't report. The concussion protocol is outside the the club. Once a guy goes for a concussion, the club has no control over when the player comes back. Mm-hmm. And as you saw with Michael Orr in, in in Carolina this year, he still isn't back yet. He still hasn't been cleared. Whether yeah. he plays football or not this year, I don't know. Yeah, it really does come when people are looking for 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 blame in this situation. It really does come down to uh, they have spotters there. That's that's their job is to try to spot these things and and hold people accountable. So um, that is who uh, Bill Belichick is really leaning on there. He's not the one that has to answer those questions, but of course, people are going to ask him, and we get the beautiful moment of him being able to cover up his face with the with a new hood. And, so. and we get to see Gronk spiking a spiking a. Uh, a bouquet from a wedding, and yes. I think Gronk's back. I think we we all know Gronk's back, and this is going to be part of the off season that we talk about is Gronk's presence back on a team that didn't lose when he left. How much better are they going to be when he comes in? And 
that that's a scary component. Yep. The Emperor's New Hood featuring uh, Rob Gronkowski. He's going to be starring in that uh, film this season. It'll be good. Another big deal um, in a big market, Odell Beckham Jr. He did not report to uh, OTAs today uh, with the New York Giants. He is holding out. This is the first time he's up for a contract. This is his fourth year in the league, the new CBA. This is his first year to, to really reevaluate his situation. He just got that huge deal with Nike, so he is fine as far as how much money he's racking in outside uh, uh, of the gridiron. But Odell's situation, does this remind you of Revis back in the day with the Jets the first time, or is this a situation where Odell is basically going to be able to put his price out there and decide when he wants to come in and report with the Giants, and they basically have to give him whatever he asked for? Well, he's got a contract, so they picked up the option for his fifth season, so he's going to have to play. He doesn't have yep. to come to the OTA, OTAs. They're mandatory. They're not mandatory. And I think that, that I saw, I think I did see Odell Beckham right there on the baseline of the Warriors game. I he thought was. I saw him there. You might want to check that. Huh? He was at the Warriors game. He was. He was right there on the baseline. I, I, I don't know who he's pulling I, for, but I think he was pulling for LeBron. I'm not, uh, I'm not 100% sure. I, I'm sure that. he was. But, uh, you know, I, look, these guys that have, have had great seasons. I'm sure there's going to be conversations about Beckham uh, in terms of extending his contract. He's looked over the market. He kind of knows those contracts, whether it's David Carr's contract or Beckham's contract. These contracts aren't as hard to do because the players have achieved so much. Mm -hmm. It puts them in a different category. But Beckham not being there uh, for the Giants, he doesn't have to be there. You don't have to make him there. There's always a reason why. And, you know, he's out in California working with Chris Carter. And as long as he's getting in shape, and I think ultimately that's the key for the Giants and give some of those other receivers some work because let's face it, you know, he's got timing issues that he's going to have to get completed when he gets to training camp. But to me, I never really worried about the guys that weren't there in the OTAs. Mm-hmm. I worried more about the guys that were there and making sure they're getting the reps. Gotcha. Gotcha. Another guy that's not at OTAs uh, for the Los Angeles Rams, probably one of the best interior rushers in the NFL. And that's Aaron Donald. He is also not reporting to OTAs and is looking for, uh, a big contract from the Rams. You see the Rams uh, reaching out and trying to make a deal with Donald before the season starts. Well, I, I think they would have to, but you know the Rams, which is shocking, Tate, is they're, they're the least amount of cap room uh, of any NFL team right now. <laughs> I, I mean, it's really remarkable, and I think that it's a whole commentary about how poorly run the Rams are. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a bad team and you're at the top list of of paying players, and when you look at who they've paid and and their payroll. I mean, you know, they've got so much money tied up into some players, and those players haven't been able to win for them. Yeah. And those decisions become easy for you to make. I mean, look, if you're not a good team, and Tavon Austin's your second highest paid player, making 14 million, and Mark Barron's making 11 million, and Michael Brockers is making 11. I mean, you've got they've got five guys making over 10 million dollars a year in terms of their cap room, yeah. their cap hit. Yep. And you're not winning any games. I mean, look, Aaron Donald's making one eight this year. I would hold out too if I was Aaron Donald. They brought in Connor Barwin and making two, over two million dollars this year. He's going to make three five. They're going to have to get it done. The problem is how do they get it done? They're going to have to squeeze some cap room and try to get it in here. And they need to get Tremaine Johnson because he's eating up sixteen million dollars worth of cap room mm-hmm. for, before they can get him. They need to either extend his deal or find a way to lower his cap number to where they can, you know, give them the 16 million, but extend it out over two years and then eat 8 million next year in terms of that, whatever they want to do, but to fit in a huge contract, like it's going to take Aaron Donald, they're going to need more than what they have in terms of based on a sports track right now, based on the numbers, they're going to need to do it. And they're going to need to reduce some guys' contracts. And the thing is, is what I always found was, look, the Patriots are, are in the top 10 in terms of cap room and the Rams are in the bottom. How yeah. is that possible? Yeah. 
That makes no sense. Patriots are Patriots have according to cap track, they have four, they have twenty million of cap room. The league average is nineteen million. That's, okay, the bottom yep. teams are right now the Rams have one seven and the Eagles have two two. The Rams are thirty second and they have eighty nine players. Which is remarkable. <laughs> and then the Chargers are twenty ninth and the Ravens are thirtieth. Yeah. The one thing you don't want to be is bad and spending a lot of money. Yeah. And that's the Rams. And you start looking at the guys that are making some big money for them, you know, even like a Greg Robinson who, you know, they bring in Andrew Whitworth to come in from the Bengals and, you know, he has a veteran presence, but he's there to to protect Jared Goff because Greg Robinson can't get the job done and he's making, you know, $6 million. And you got Jared Cook making a bunch of money there. And, you know, you keep going down and down the list and it's like these guys uh, are really stressed out. But I will say that Robert Quinn, though, he, he, uh, I think Robert Quinn can have a big. He's year. a good player. Yeah, and the average age of the Rams team is twenty-four million. Yeah, twenty-four years. Okay, yep. so they only have guys twenty-four years old. So they're a young team, but so all these contracts are huge, you mm-hmm. know, and they're going to have to go into somebody and try to redo them. And the only way you can redo a contract is when you have a guy who's got a lot of paragraph five in his base, you know, like Roger Saffold has has uh, has four point seven million, you know. So you got to find a way to lower his number. Robert Quinn is six six, so you can try to lower him. Yeah. But Michael Brockers, you can't lower his number. He's at one two five. Yep. And the only way to get cap room is to attack that paragraph five. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be a difficult challenge. And I think the Rams are a team that you just have to shake your head and say, "How is this possible?" Yep. Yep. All right, Lombardi. Another guy that actually did go to OTAs, which is an exciting thing for a lot of football fans out there, and that's Marshawn Lynch. He reports uh, Jack Del Rio actually tweeted out a video of Marshawn Lynch bursting through the hole for a, for a big touchdown run on Twitter uh, earlier this week. Um, is that exciting? Obviously, that's exciting for the Oakland Raiders, but does that mean that they're a true contender now? It looks like Marshawn's uh, a back and form based on what uh, Del Rio's putting out to the world. I mean, I thought he looked great. I mean, he looked like he was in decent shape, and it looked like he had burst and acceleration. I think it's going to be a great piece for the Raiders. That they got to keep him healthy. Yep. Like I said, I think I would be more concerned about the last eight games with Marshawn Lynch than I would be the first eight. But mm-hmm. it was good to see him. I think it was a great, great uh, indication that Lynch is back. He's, he likes it. You know, he's an Oakland kid, so he's going to give it. I think the question for the Raiders is going to be how good they can be on defense. Yep. I think the Raiders have a lot of things going for them offensively. And, you know, when they add the tight end, Jared Cook in there to go along with some of the other young players they have, I think this is, you know, the Raiders have a good chance. But the key is going to be, are they going to be good enough? If they keep getting into those track meets on defense and they won a lot of close games last year, it's tough to duplicate that as you improve the schedule and improve the strength of schedule. So it's all what comes down really for the defense for the Raiders. If the defense for the Raiders can play well, I think they certainly can 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 compete for the West and and Lynch can close it out, and he'll be a factor come late November, December. It almost feels like it's it was always destined to end up this way, where Marshawn Lynch is with the Raiders. So it's uh, it's cool to see, and obviously Del Rio putting that out to the world. He really is supporting him, and and uh, we'll see. That'll be big for Oakland or the future Las Vegas Raiders, unfortunately. But now let's move on to our favorite segment of the week. That's word on the street, all the sights and sounds around the NFL. The first one is a big domino that fell today. The Jets are finally going to cut ties and release longtime linebacker David Harris. David Harris is, you know, people remember like number 52 in the middle there for the uh, the Jets during those big runs of the AFC titles um, back in 2009 and 2010. He's uh, he's it's going to be weird seeing that defense without David Harris. What does he mean to the Jets and what's his future look like? Well, I mean, the Jets try to get a reduction. He's making six five. He's not a three-down linebacker. He had two tip passes last year, balls defended. Yep. You know, he's a guy who's really re- 
really losing his step and speed. He can't cover anymore. I know the name David Harris has Jet fans, you know, panicking because he might not be on their team. But in reality, when you look at him play, the foot speed is a problem. And, and I truly believe this, Tate. When your Mike linebacker is slow, your defense is slow. Yep. And the Jets' Mike linebacker was slow. And when you're playing so much no huddle teams, teams that don't allow you to substitute, and if you they can lock your Mike on the field because he's the player who's got the dot, who can call the signals, and he gets locked on the field, there's a lot of matchups you can take advantage of. And the speed of your underneath coverage, which allows you to force fumbles, allows you to create some turnovers, isn't there. And the Jets couldn't create any turnovers. The Jets had 13 guys last year on their team that were over 30 years old. Mm -hmm. They've gotten rid of 10 of them with David Harris now. They have three guys remaining. And so I think what you're seeing is the Jets are basically having a youth movement they wanted to keep Harris because he's a, vi- a valuable player in terms of their leadership. But what he can do and how he can play isn't to the level that most fans think. And I was reading Twitter before we started this, and most Jet fans are overreacting. David Harris might have been their leading tackler. He might have been their leader. But that was on a bad defense. And I think sometimes we forget. It's like Elvis Dumerville signing with the 49ers. Everybody said, well, the 49ers got their pass rush. Well, timeout. Yeah. Timeout. Dumerville might be able to rush a little bit, but they didn't get their pass rusher. Yeah. Like veteran guys, we tend to remember when they were, not how they're going to be. I think it's a little bit like David Harris. Yeah, it's like a Dwight Dwight Freeney in Arizona, something like that, you know. Or, or, yeah, although Dwight Freeney came to life in the Super Bowl. I mean, yeah, that Super that's Bowl true. performance. Uh, Nate Solder wakes up in the middle of the night wondering where that where that Freeney came from, <laughs> you know, because that was as good as I've seen Dwight Freeney play since Indianapolis. But that's true, Tate. I think that's what happens is you think the guy can do something and he's kind of on his last leg. Yep. Yep. That's how it's kind of goes with those guys. A guy that is also over 30 that could be uh, on the outside looking in is Darrell Revis. And I just have to ask, I mean, this is tough for me to say, is this finally going to be the end of Revis Island? I mean, I feel like it's already over. It's already foreclosed. The Island it's, uh, you know, the sea level is rising. There's there's sort of just the waves are crashing, just getting worse and worse on Revis Island. Nobody wants to be there anymore. It's not like Cuba where they're cutting down service spirits, no longer serving Cuba. They're cutting down flights. I think there's no one going to Revis Island. I think it's worse than that. And I think there's no tourism there. Because the reality is, when you watch him play, you can see a lack of speed. Mm. And so now you have to ask yourself, can he fit into our scheme? How do we want to utilize him? And when you have that foot speed issue, he's not really an inside corner. He plays on the outside. And I think what the Jets tried to do last year is cater to him to try to cover him up. It hurts the defense. They try to cater to all their defense. I think when you look at the Jets team last year, the number one thing that stood out is they had really bad chemistry within their locker room. And all those guys that they had jettisoned out of there were partly responsible for that bad chemistry. Whether they're better or not this year, I don't know. I think Revis Island is probably closed for good. Wow. That is... uh... And it's sad to hear. That's that's tough for all the people that remember the good days uh, of Gangring Nation. Which, speaking of the uh, the guy that actually made all that possible, Rex Ryan, back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. This weekend, did you see this video of of the Ryan brothers? I saw it. They were they were in Nashville. They're just having fun. They they get in a little little scuffle at a bar in Nashville. Obviously, the Ryan brothers or the Bash brothers are just out there having a good time, uh, drinking margaritas or whatever they're up to. Um, but it, there's a great video online if you haven't checked that out. That uh, so everyone from that era of Jets, you know, it was a beautiful time for Jets fans. And now, um, looking back at it, eight nine years later, 
it's uh it's not so beautiful. But I feel like Rex is gonna get a shot, you know, on TV. He he's too entertaining not to keep uh to keep around. So we're hoping we see he's more Rex. Of, 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 now he's going to now he's going to parties and they're hanging up Predators games. They're crashing weddings. I mean, yeah. he's become the Bill Murray of the NFL. They should uh, make like a wedding crashers too, and it's with the Ryan brothers and like Vince Vaughn's like sort of their guide, you know, throughout the movie. He's like sort of in the movie, you know, it's like tongue in cheek. I'd watch that. Not not a ba- not a bad call, Tate. Not a bad call. Yeah, we could do that. Uh, Next up, another story, uh, Riverboat Ron. We mentioned this earlier about uh, Christian McCaffrey and the rule that's keeping him out yeah. of OTAs. But Ron Rivera comes out officially and blasts the NFL, calling the rule unfair um, and saying that McCaffrey, he voluntarily did not enroll in the uh, the spring semester for the for the sheer reason that he wanted to be able to get right into camp. Uh, but he's still having to wait out till June 14th, and that's when Stanford's term is finally up. Um what do you think about Rivera calling out the NFL? And do you think this will be the the thing that actually makes this rule get handled and get changed? And uh, will that actually happen, or will this just be you know fall on deaf ears? I, I don't think it'll change because it's it's being it's being controlled by the college coaches. They want that graduation, and you know if you graduate, you can be free to go. I, I think when you look at at Connor McDermott from the from the Patriots, he's from UCLA. He's graduated. Mm-hmm. He's allowed to be there. If you graduate, you you can go. Yep. But it's a little bit like this NBA rule that maybe Adam Silver, we had it on, on, on the ringer, talking about how he's maybe done with one and done. And I, I think there's some things that, that have to change in basketball, and there's some things that have to change in football. It's really not fair to these kids that play at UCLA, Stanford, Oregon, those kind of places where they won't let you come in. You get you get behind. It's not the first-round pick. McCafferty's going to be able to overcome it. Mm-hmm. It's those six, seventh, and eight, six, yep. seventh, and free agent guys that become a problem. And, and I think that's really... Uh, really, you know, that's something they have to look into. But it's only going to have to come from the colleges. It's not going to come from Ron Rivera complaining about it. I mean, you know it when you draft him, and you just got to live with it. Yeah. Kobe Fleener is out there just saying, please, someone, someone address this. This this Pac-12 bias has to stop. Uh, so Yeah. It, well, it's the rule. It's just how they're doing it. You know, it's how they get the semesters. It's kind of the... The, the quarter system we had it with Cam Fleming when I was at mm-hmm. the Patriots. He's at Stanford. You got to try to find a way to get him the information and get him to be in- integrated into your team without having him actually be there. Yep. Another guy that's out there on the market that that's bouncing around that went and visited the Bills today. Uh, that's Jeremy Macklin. Macklin trying to find a new home. What do you see for Macklin? Do you think there's still value for him there? Obviously, a speedy guy was great with the Eagles. Had a good run with the Chiefs, and now he's trying to find a new home. I think what happened was he, he, he's starting to decline a little bit, maybe not quite the best outside receiver, but David Coley, the, the quarterback coach at Buffalo, coached him in Philadelphia. He coached mm-hmm. him in Kansas City. He's in Buffalo. I think unless Buffalo gets outbid by the Ravens or somebody substantially more money comes to the table, I see Macklin going to Buffalo. I think Macklin would really help Buffalo. Uh, I think the Chiefs felt like he was declining. They wanted to get other guys on the field. They felt like he was a progress stopper for them. They felt like they needed to get uh, Demarcus Robinson on the field. They mm-hmm. really liked Chris Conley and obviously yep. Tyreek Hills, their main guy. So, you know, this is a this is something that this is the risk you have to take. And by letting him go, they they helped themselves in terms of the Chiefs did. They helped themselves in terms of cap relief and cash relief. They got to help Demarcus Robinson comes through and really performs well. I think Buffalo could really use use a guy like Macklin. It would help 
It would help with the veteran leadership, and it would also give them a guy that understands what it takes to win in their locker room. I think Buffalo would do really well with them. McDermott was with them in Philadelphia. There's a lot of commonality in Buffalo. I think it would be a smart move for Buffalo to get them, even though it's going to be a short-term thing. I don't think Macklin's got four years left, but I think he can certainly help a team like Buffalo as they develop some of their young guys. It'll help Zay Jones. It'll help Corey Brown. It'll help all those younger receivers that they have. Yep, definitely. Because, uh, yeah, and that uh, Kansas City Chiefs offense will be a little different now because it used to be basically Travis Kelsey or Jeremy Macklin was who <laughs> Alex Smith is going to throw the now, ball now to. Now it's Tyreek Hill. It's like, watch yep. out, fellas. Yep. Here comes Mr. Here comes the roadrunner. Beep, beep. Yep, exactly. That is uh, speed. Uh, speed is a big thing, uh, of course, as, as we will continue to, to highlight throughout this podcast. Uh, final thing, we're going to come full circle here. Uh, we're going to go back to the Seahawks. The Seattle Seahawks, there's a lot of rumors swirling that the Seahawks were looking to sign Colin Kaepernick. They bring him in, the only team to bring him in for a workout. They instead signed Austin Davis. Yeah, Austin he- Davis who's kind of bounced around the league, smart kid, knows the system, Yes, you know, has played in a West Coast style of system. Uh, you know, whether it's the contract, whether it's the, the issues, hard to say. But, you know, Kaepernick, for him, you know, he turned down a huge contract. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's the tape. I know nobody wants to hear it. I keep saying it. I know there's some people that write that, you know, the commissioner should step in and give Kaepernick a job. I think people watch the tape. I don't think the tape's very good. And I think that's why he doesn't have a job yeah. as a starter. Yeah, as a, and that's and that's what the Seahawks. Uh, that was re- their reasons behind not signing Kaepernick. They said that that they thought Davis was a backup, and they were looking for a backup, and they viewed Kaepernick as starting potential. So that's why they did not want to offer him the contract because they don't need competition. They just need someone behind Wilson. Um, yeah, Davis. I, I have. Uh, he was at Southern Miss, right, with Larry Fedora. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, Austin Davis. Well, good for him. He got a he got a job. Uh, that's tough for Boykin out of TCU. So that's a nice little like Southern rivalry right there between like Mississippi and uh, Texas between those two. <laughs> yeah, they, they just better hope Russell Wilson doesn't get hurt. Yeah, and now exactly. that they're going to move him in and out of the pocket, like we talked about, hopefully he'll stay healthy, which I think really you know will help Seattle. I think Seattle's with all the noise as we close this podcast. All the noise. I think Seattle loves the noise. I think they'll relish it, and I think they'll have a great year. Yep. Uh, so watch out for the Seahawks. They're trying to fly back to the top of the NFC. And uh, that is it for this week of GM Street. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking more NFL offseason storylines, and I'm sure we'll touch on the basketball a little bit uh, if Lombardi lets me. Got to, Tate. we got to get ready for the draft. Of course. Got to get ready for the draft. They're going to trade that pick. Your boy Colangelo, he's going to trade that do, number three if pick. If they do, I'm going to jump out of this building. So. <laughs> Stay tuned to DM Street. Let's hope Lombardi doesn't Henson. jump out. Don't get me started. We don't have enough time. I live through Roy. If they trade this pick, I'm jumping out of the building. All right. that's You heard it here first. Lombardi's letting you know, Colangelo. Don't blow it. Uh, make the pick. Take uh, take Lonzo. I hope Lonzo's there, but I think the Lakers are going to take him at two. I think they are, too. I think it's all just a smoke screen, but that's what I'm told by people in the league. So we'll hopefully see. I'll go for Fox. We'll go from there. All right. De'Aaron Fox, you heard it here. Mike Lombardi wants you uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers. So we'll see. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Lombardi. All right, Kate. Thank you.